Lecture 10, Part 2 of The Varieties of Religious Experience. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. Lecture 10, Conversion Concluded. Part 2. The believers in the non-natural character of sudden conversion have had practically to admit that there is no unmistakable class-mark distinctive of all true converts. The supernormal incidents, such as voices and visions and overpowering impressions of the meaning of suddenly presented scripture texts, the melting emotions and tumultuous affections connected with the crisis of change, may all come by way of nature, or worse still, be counterfeited by Satan. The real witness of the spirit to the second birth is to be found only in the disposition of the genuine child of God, the permanently patient heart, the love of self-eradicated. And this, it has to be admitted, is also found in those who pass no crisis, and may even be found outside of Christianity altogether. Throughout Jonathan Edwards' admirably rich and delicate description of the supernaturally infused condition, in his treatise on religious affections there is not one decisive trait not one mark that unmistakably parts it off from what may possibly be only an exceptionally high degree of natural goodness in fact one could hardly read a clearer argument than this book unwittingly offers in favor of the thesis that no chasm exists between the orders of human excellence but that here as elsewhere nature shows continuous differences and generation and regeneration are matters of degree all which denial of two objective classes of human beings separated by a chasm must not leave us blind to the extraordinary momentousness of the fact of his conversion to the individual himself who gets converted there are higher and lower limits of possibility set to each personal life if a flood but goes above one's head, its absolute elevation becomes a matter of small importance, and when we touch our own upper limit, and live in our own highest center of energy, we may call ourselves saved, no matter how much higher someone else's center may be. The small man's salvation will always be a great salvation, and the greatest of all facts for him, and we should remember this, when the fruits of our ordinary evangelicism look discouraging. Who knows how much less ideal still the lives of these spiritual grubs and earthworms, these crumps and stingences, might have been, if such poor grace as they have received had never touched them at all. Footnote. Emerson writes, quote, When we see a soul whose acts are regal, graceful, and pleasant as roses, we must thank God that such things can be, and are, and not turn sourly on the angel and say, Crump is a better man, with his grunting resistance to all his native devils. True enough. Yet, Crump may really be the better Crump for his inner discords and second birth, and your once-born regal character, though indeed always better than poor Crump, may fall far short of what he individually might be 
had he only some crump-like capacity for compunction over his own peculiar diabolisms, graceful and pleasant and invariably gentlemanly as these may be. End footnote. If we roughly arrange human beings in classes, each class standing for a grade of spiritual excellence, I believe we shall find natural men and converts, both sudden and gradual, in all the classes. The forms which regenerative change effects have, then, no general spiritual significance, but only a psychological significance. We have seen how Starbuck's laborious statistical studies tend to assimilate conversion to ordinary spiritual growth. Another American psychologist, Professor George A. Coe, has analyzed the cases of 77 converts or ex-candidates for conversion, known to him, and the results strikingly confirm the view that sudden conversion is connected with the possession of an active subliminal self. Examining his subjects with reference to their hypnotic sensibility and to such automatisms as hypnagogic hallucinations, odd impulses, religious dreams about the time of their conversion, etc., he found these relatively much more frequent in the group of converts whose transformation had been striking, striking transformation being defined as a change which, though not necessarily instantaneous, seems to the subject of it to be distinctly different from a process of growth, however rapid. Candidates for conversion at revivals are, as you know, often disappointed. They experienced nothing striking. Professor Coe had a number of persons of this class among his 77 subjects, and they almost all, when tested by hypnotism, proved to belong to a subclass which he calls spontaneous, that is, fertile in self-suggestions, as distinguished from a passive subclass, to which most of the subjects of striking transformation belonged. His inference is that self-suggestion of impossibility had prevented the influence upon these persons of an environment which, on the more passive subjects, had easily brought forth the effects they looked for. Sharp distinctions are difficult in these regions, and Professor Coe's numbers are small. But his methods were careful, and the results tally with what one might expect, and they seem, on the whole, to justify his practical conclusion, which is that, if you should expose to a converting influence a subject in whom three factors unite, first, pronounced emotional sensibility, second, tendency to automatisms, and third, suggestibility of the passive type, you might then safely predict the result. There would be a sudden conversion, a transformation of the striking kind. Does this temperamental origin diminish the significance of the sudden conversion when it has occurred? Not in the least, as Professor Coe well says, for, quote, The ultimate test of religious values is nothing psychological, nothing definable in terms of how it happens, but something ethical, definable only in terms of what is attained. Close quote. As we proceed farther in our inquiry, we shall see that what is attained is often an altogether new level of spiritual vitality, a relatively heroic level in which impossible things have become possible, and new energies and endurances are shown. 
the personality is changed the man is born anew whether or not his psychological idiosyncrasies are what give the particular shape to his metamorphosis sanctification is the technical name of this result and ere long examples of it shall be brought before you in this lecture i have still only to add a few remarks on the assurance and peace which fill the hour of change itself one word more though before proceeding to that point lest the final purpose of my explanation of suddenness by subliminal activity be misunderstood i do indeed believe that if the subject have no liability to such subconscious activity or if his conscious fields have a hard rind of a margin that resists incursions from beyond it his conversion must be gradual if it occur and must resemble any simple growth into new habits his possession of a developed subliminal self and of a leaky or pervious margin is thus a conditio sine qua non of the subjects becoming converted in the instantaneous way but if you being orthodox christians ask me as a psychologist whether the reference of a phenomenon to the subliminal self does not exclude the notion of the direct presence of the deity altogether i have to say frankly that as a psychologist i do not see why it necessarily should the lower manifestations of the subliminal indeed fall within the resources of the personal subject his ordinary sense material inattentively taken in and subconsciously remembered and combined will account for all his usual automatisms but just as our primary wide-awake consciousness throws open our senses to the touch of things material so it is logically conceivable that if there be higher spiritual agencies that can directly touch us the psychological condition of their doing so might be our possession of a subconscious region which alone should yield access to them the hubbub of the waking life might close a door which in the dreamy subliminal might remain ajar or open thus that perception of external control which is so essential a feature in conversion might in some cases at any rate be interpreted as the orthodox interpret it forces transcending the finite individual might impress him on condition of his being what we may call a subliminal human specimen but in any case the value of these forces would have to be determined by their effects and the mere fact of their transcendency would of itself establish no presumption that they were more divine than diabolical i confess that this is the way in which i should rather see the topic left lying in your minds until i come to a much later lecture when i hope once more to gather these dropped threads together into more definitive conclusions the notion of a subconscious self certainly ought not at this point of our inquiry to be held to exclude all notion of a higher penetration if there be higher powers able to impress us they may get access to us only through the subliminal door let us turn now to the feelings which immediately fill the hour of the conversion experience the first one to be noted is just this sense of higher control it is not always but it is very often present we saw examples of it in alleny bradley brainerd and elsewhere 
the need of such a higher controlling agency is well expressed in the short reference which the eminent french protestant adolphe manod makes to the crisis of his own conversion it was at naples in his early manhood in the summer of eighteen twenty seven he says my sadness was without limit and having got entire possession of me it filled my life from the most indifferent external acts to the most secret thoughts and corrupted at their source my feelings my judgment and my happiness it was then that i saw that to expect to put a stop to this disorder by my reason and my will which were themselves diseased would be to act like a blind man who should pretend to correct one of his eyes by the aid of the other equally blind one i had then no resource save in some influence from without i remembered the promise of the holy ghost and what the positive declarations of the gospel had never succeeded in bringing home to me i learned at last from necessity and believed for the first time in my life in this promise in the only sense in which it answered the needs of my soul in that namely of a real external supernatural action capable of giving me thoughts and taking them away from me and exerting on me by a god as truly master of my heart as he is of the rest of nature renouncing then all merit all strength abandoning all my personal resources and acknowledging no other title to his mercy than my own utter misery i went home and threw myself on my knees and prayed as i never yet prayed in my life from this day onwards a new interior life began for me not that my melancholy had disappeared but it had lost its sting hope had entered into my heart and once entered on the path the god of jesus christ to whom i then had learned to give myself up little by little did the rest it is needless to remind you once more of the admirable congruity of protestant theology with the structure of the mind as shown in such experiences in the extreme of melancholy the self that consciously is can do absolutely nothing it is completely bankrupt and without resource and no works it can accomplish will avail redemption from such subjective conditions must be a free gift or nothing and grace through christ's accomplished sacrifice is such a gift says luther quote, god is the god of the humble the miserable the oppressed and the desperate and of those that are brought even to nothing and his nature is to give sight to the blind to comfort the broken-hearted to justify sinners to save the very desperate and damned now that pernicious and pestilent opinion of man's own righteousness which will not be a sinner unclean miserable and damnable but righteous and holy suffereth not god to come to his own natural and proper work therefore god must take this maul in hand the law i mean to beat in pieces and bring to nothing this beast with her vain confidence that she may so learn at length by her own misery that she is utterly forlorn and damned but here lieth the difficulty that when a man is terrified and cast down he is so little able to raise himself up again and say now i am bruised and afflicted enough 
Now is the time of grace. Now is the time to hear Christ. The foolishness of men's heart is so great that then he rather seeketh to himself more laws to satisfy his conscience. If I live, saith he, I will amend my life. I will do this, I will do that. But here, except thou do the quite contrary, except thou send Moses away with his law, and in these terrors and this anguish lay hold upon Christ, who died for thy sins, look for no salvation. Thy cowl, thy shaven crown, thy chastity, thy obedience, thy poverty, thy works, thy merits, what shall these do? What shall the law of Moses avail? If I, wretched and damnable sinner, through works or merits could have loved the Son of God, and so come to him, what needed he to deliver himself for me? If I, being a wretch and damned sinner, could be redeemed by any other price, what needed the Son of God to be given? But because there was no other price, therefore he delivered neither sheep, ox, gold, nor silver, but even God himself, entirely and wholly for me. Even for me, I say, a miserable, wretched sinner. Now, therefore, I take comfort and apply this to myself. And this manner of applying is the very true force and power of faith. For he died not to justify the righteous, but the unrighteous, and to make them the children of God. Close quote. That is, the more literally lost you are, the more literally you are the very being whom Christ's sacrifice has already saved. Nothing in Catholic theology, I imagine, has ever spoken to sick souls as straight as this message from Luther's personal experience. As Protestants are not all sick souls, of course, reliance on what Luther exults in calling the dung of one's merits, the filthy puddle of one's own righteousness, has come to the front again in their religion, but the adequacy of his view of Christianity to the deeper parts of our human mental structure is shown by its wildfire contagiousness when it was a new and quickening thing. Faith that Christ has genuinely done his work was part of what Luther meant by faith, which, so far, is fact in a faith intellectually conceived of. But this is only one part of Luther's faith, the other part being far more vital. This other part is something not intellectual, but immediate and intuitive, the assurance, namely, that I, this individual I, just as I stand without one plea, etc., am saved now and forever. Footnote. In some conversations, both steps are distinct. In this one, for example. Quote, Whilst I was reading the evangelical treatise, I was soon struck by an impression. The finished work of Christ. I asked myself, why does the author use these terms? Why does he not say, the atoning work? Then, these words, it is finished, presented themselves to my mind. What is it that is finished? I asked, and in an instant my mind replied, a perfect expiation for sin, entire satisfaction has been given, the debt has been paid by the substitute. 
Christ died for our sins, not for ours only, but for those of all men. If, then, the entire work is finished, all the debt paid, what remains for me to do? In another instant, the light was shed through my mind by the Holy Ghost, and the joyous conviction was given me that nothing more was to be done, save to fall on my knees, to accept this Saviour and his love, to praise God forever. Close quote. End footnote. Professor Leuba is undoubtedly right in contending that the conceptual belief about Christ's work, although so often efficacious and antecedent, is really accessory and non-essential, and that the joyous conviction can also come by far other channels than this conception. It is to this joyous conviction itself, the assurance that all is well with one, that he would give the name of faith par excellence. He writes, quote, When the sense of estrangement fencing man about in a narrowly limited ego breaks down, the individual finds himself at one with all creation. He lives in the universal life. He and man, he and nature, he and God are one. That state of confidence, trust, union with all things, following upon the achievement of moral unity, is the faith state. Various dogmatic beliefs suddenly, on the advent of the faith state, acquire a character of certainty, assume a new reality, become an object of faith. As the ground of assurance here is not rational, argumentation is irrelevant. But such conviction, being a mere causal offshoot of the faith state, it is a gross error to imagine that the chief practical value of the faith state is its power to stamp with the seal of reality certain particular theological conceptions. Footnote. Tolstoy's case was a good comment on those words. There was almost no theology in his conversion. His faith state was the sense come back that life was infinite in its moral significance. End footnote. On the contrary, its value lies solely in the fact that it is the psychic correlate of a biological growth reducing contending desires to one direction, a growth which expresses itself in new affective states and new reactions, in larger, nobler, more Christ-like activities. The ground of the specific assurance in religious dogmas is then an affective experience. The objects of faith may even be preposterous, the effective stream will float them along and invest them with unshakable certitude. The more startling the effective experience, the less explicable it seems, the easier it is to make it the carrier of unsubstantiated notions. Close quote. The characteristics of the effective experience, which, to avoid ambiguity, should, I think, be called the state of assurance rather than the faith state, can be easily enumerated, though it is probably difficult to realize their intensity, unless one have been through the experience oneself. The central one is the loss of all the worry, the sense that all is ultimately well with one, the peace, the harmony, the willingness to be, even though the outer conditions should remain the same. The certainty of God's grace, of justification, salvation, is an objective belief 
that usually accompanies the change in Christians, but this may be entirely lacking, and yet the effect of peace remain the same. You will recollect the case of the Oxford graduate, and many might be given where the assurance of personal salvation was only a later result. A passion of willingness, of acquiescence, of admiration, is the glowing center of this state of mind. The second feature is the sense of perceiving truths not known before. The mysteries of life become lucid, as Professor Leuba says, and often, nay, usually, the solution is more or less unutterable in words. But these more intellectual phenomena may be postponed until we treat of mysticism. A third peculiarity of the assurance state is the objective change which the world often appears to undergo. An appearance of newness beautifies every object, the precise opposite of that other sort of newness, that dreadful unreality and strangeness in the appearance of the world, which is experienced by melancholy patience, and of which you may recall my relating some examples. This sense of clean and beautiful newness within and without is one of the commonest entries in conversion records. Jonathan Edwards thus describes it in himself. Quote, After this, my sense of divine things gradually increased, and became more and more lively, and had more of that inward sweetness. The appearance of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm sweet cast or appearance of divine glory in almost everything. God's excellency, his wisdom, his purity and love, seemed to appear in everything, in the sun, moon, and stars, in the clouds and blue sky, in the grass, flowers, and trees, in the water and all nature, which used greatly to fix my mind. And scarce anything, among all the works of nature, was so sweet to me as thunder and lightning. Formerly nothing had been so terrible to me. Before, I used to be uncommonly terrified with thunder, and to be struck with terror when I saw a thunderstorm rising. But now, on the contrary, it rejoices me. Close quote. Billy Bray, an excellent little illiterate English evangelist, records his sense of newness thus. Quote, I said to the Lord, Thou hast said, They that ask shall receive, they that seek shall find, and to them that knock the door shall be opened, and I have faith to believe it. In an instant the Lord made me so happy that I cannot express what I felt. I shouted for joy. I praised God with my whole heart. I think this was November 1823, but what day of the month I do not know. I remember this, that everything looked new to me, the people, the fields, the cattle, the trees. I was like a new man in a new world. I spent the greater part of my time in praising the Lord. Close quote. Starbuck and Liuba both illustrate this sense of newness by quotations. I take the two following from Starbuck's manuscript collection. One, a woman, says, quote, I was taken to a camp meeting, mother and religious friends seeking and praying for my conversion. My emotional nature was stirred to its depths. Confessions of depravity and pleading with God for salvation from sin 
made me oblivious of all surroundings. I pled for mercy, and had a vivid realization of forgiveness and renewal of my nature. When, rising from my knees, I exclaimed, Old things have passed away, all things have become new. It was like entering into another world, a new state of existence. Natural objects were glorified. My spiritual vision was so clarified that I saw beauty in every material object in the universe. The woods were vocal with heavenly music. My soul exulted in the love of God, and I wanted everybody to share in my joy. Close quote. The next case is that of a man. Quote, I know not how I got back into the encampment, but found myself staggering up to Reverend So-and-So's holiness tent, and, as it was full of seekers and a terrible noise inside, some groaning, some laughing, and some shouting, and by a large oak, ten feet from the tent, I fell on my face by a bench and tried to pray, and every time I would call on God, something like a man's hand would strangle me by choking. I don't know whether there were anyone around or near me or not. I thought I would surely die if I did not get help, but just as often as I would pray, that unseen hand was felt on my throat, and my breath squeezed off. Finally, something said, Venture on the atonement, for you will die anyway if you don't. So I made one final struggle to call on God for mercy, with the same choking and strangling, determined to finish the sentence of prayer for mercy if I did strangle and die. And the last I remember that time was falling back on the ground with the same unseen hand on my throat. I don't know how long I lay there or what was going on. None of my folks were present. When I came to myself, there were a crowd around me praising God. The very heavens seemed to open and pour down rays of light and glory. Not for a moment only, but all day and night, floods of light and glory seemed to pour through my soul. And oh, how I was changed and everything became new. My horses and hogs and even everybody seemed changed. Close quote. This man's case introduces the feature of automatisms, which in suggestible subjects have been so startling a feature at revival since, in Edwards, Wesley's, and Whitfield's time, these became a regular means of gospel propagation. They were at first supposed to be semi-miraculous proofs of power on the part of the Holy Ghost, but great divergence of opinion quickly arose concerning them. Edwards, in his Thoughts on the Revival of Religion in New England, has to defend them against their critics, and their value has long been matter of debate, even within the revivalistic denominations. They undoubtedly have no essential spiritual significance, and although their presence makes his conversion more memorable to the convert, it has never been proved that converts who show them are more preserving or fertile in good fruits than those whose change of heart has had less violent accompaniments. On the whole, unconsciousness, convulsions, visions, involuntary vocal utterances and suffocation must be simply ascribed to the subjects having a large subliminal region, 
involving nervous instability. This is often the subject's own view of the matter afterwards. One of Starbuck's correspondents writes, for instance, quote, I have been through the experience which is known as conversion. My experience of it is this. The subject works his emotions up to the breaking point, at the same time resisting their physical manifestations, such as quickened pulse, etc., and then suddenly lets them have their full sway over his body. The relief is something wonderful, and the pleasurable effects of the emotions are experienced to the highest degree. Close quote. There is one form of sensory automatism which possibly deserves special notice on account of its frequency. I refer to hallucinatory or pseudo-hallucinatory luminous phenomena, photisms, to use the term of the psychologists. St. Paul's blinding heavenly vision seems to have been a phenomenon of this sort. So does Constantine's cross in the sky. The last case but one, which I quoted, mentions flood of light and glory. Henry Alleny mentions a light, about whose externality he seems uncertain. Colonel Gardiner sees a blazing light. President Finney writes, quote, All at once the glory of God shone upon and round about me in a manner almost marvelous. A light, perfectly ineffable, shone in my soul, that almost prostrated me on the ground, this light seemed like the brightness of the sun in every direction. It was too intense for the eyes. I think I knew something then, by actual experience, of that light that prostrated Paul on the way to Damascus. It was surely a light such as I could not have endured long. Close quote. Such reports of photisms are indeed far from uncommon. Here is another from Starbuck's collection where the light appeared evidently external. Quote, I had attended a series of revival services for about two weeks, off and on. Had been invited to the altar several times, all the same becoming more deeply impressed, when finally I decided I must do this or I should be lost. Realization of conversion was very vivid, like a ton's weight being lifted from my heart. A strange light which seemed to light up the whole room, for it was dark. A conscious supreme bliss which caused me to repeat, Glory to God, for a long time. Decided to be God's child for life and to give up my pet ambition, wealth and social position. My former habits of life hindered my growth somewhat, but I set about overcoming these systematically, and in one year, my whole nature was changed, i.e., my ambitions were of a different order. Close quote. Here is another one of Starbuck's cases involving a luminous element. Quote, I had been clearly converted twenty-three years before, or rather reclaimed. My experience in regeneration was then clear and spiritual. I had not backslidden. But I experienced entire sanctification on the 15th day of March, 1893, about 11 o'clock in the morning. The particular accompaniments of the experience were entirely unexpected. I was quietly sitting at home singing selections out of Pentecostal hymns. Suddenly, there seemed to be a something sweeping into me and inflating my entire being. 
such a sensation as I had never experienced before. When this experience came, I seemed to be conducted round a large, capacious, well-lighted room. As I walked with my invisible conductor and looked around, a clear thought was coined in my head. They are not here. They are gone. As soon as the thought was definitely formed in my mind, though no word was spoken, the Holy Spirit impressed me that I was surveying my own soul. Then, for the first time in all my life, did I know that I was cleansed from all sin and filled with the fullness of God. Close quote. Leuba quotes the case of a Mr. Peak, where the luminous affection reminds one of the chromatic hallucinations produced by the intoxicant cactus buds called mescal by the Mexicans. Quote, when I went in the morning into the fields to work, the glory of God appeared in all his visible creation. I well remember we reaped oats, and how every straw and head of the oats seemed, as it were, arrayed in a kind of rainbow glory, or to glow, if I may so express it, in the glory of God. Close quote. Footnote. These reports of sensorial photism shade off into what are evidently only metaphorical accounts of the sense of new spiritual illumination, as, for instance, in Brainerd's statement, quote, As I was walking in a thick grove, unspeakable glory seemed to open to the apprehension of my soul. I do not mean any external brightness, for I saw no such thing nor any imagination of a body of light in the third heavens or anything of that nature, but it was a new inward apprehension or view that I had of God. In a case like this next one from Starbuck's manuscript collection, the lighting up of the darkness is probably also metaphorical. Quote, one Sunday night, I resolved that when I got home to the ranch where I was working, I would offer myself with my faculties and all to God to be used only by and for him. It was raining and the roads were muddy, but the desire grew so strong that I kneeled down by the side of the road and told God all about it, intending then to get up and go on. Such a thing as any special answer to my prayer never entered into my mind, having been converted by faith but still being most undoubtedly saved. Well, while I was praying, I remember holding out my hands to God and telling him they should work for him, my feet walk for him, my tongue speak for him, etc., etc., if he would only use me as his instrument and give me a satisfying experience. When, suddenly, the darkness of the night seemed lit up, I felt realized, knew, that God heard and answered my prayer. Deep happiness came over me. I felt I was accepted into the inner circle of God's loved ones. Close quote. In the following case also, the flash of light is metaphorical. Quote, A prayer meeting had been called for at close of evening service. The minister supposed me impressed by his discourse, a mistake. He was dull. He came, and, placing his hands upon my shoulder, said, Do you not want to give your heart to God? 
I replied in the affirmative. Then he said, Come to the front seat. They sang and prayed and talked with me. I experienced nothing but unaccountable wretchedness. They declared that the reason why I did not obtain peace was because I was not willing to give up all to God. After about two hours, the minister said we would go home. As usual, on retiring, I prayed. In great distress, I at this time simply said, Lord, I have done all I can. I leave the whole matter with thee. Immediately, like a flash of light, there came to me a great peace, and I arose and went into my parents' bedroom and said, I do feel so wonderfully happy. This I regard as the hour of conversion. It was the hour in which I became assured of divine acceptance and favor. So far as my life was concerned, it made little immediate change. End footnote. The most characteristic of all the elements of the conversion crisis, and the last one of which I shall speak, is the ecstasy of happiness produced. We have already heard several accounts of it, but I will add a couple more. President Finney's is so vivid that I will give it at length. Quote, All my feelings seemed to rise and flow out, and the utterance of my heart was, I want to pour my whole soul out to God. The rising of my soul was so great that I rushed into the back room of the front office to pray. There was no fire and no light in the room. Nevertheless, it appeared to me as if it were perfectly light. As I went in and shut the door after me, it seemed as if I met the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. It did not occur to me then, nor did it for some time afterwards, that it was wholly a mental state. On the contrary, it seemed to me that I saw him as I would see any other man. He said nothing, but looked at me in such a manner as to break me right down at his feet. I have always since regarded this as a most remarkable state of mind, for it seemed to me a reality that he stood before me, and I fell down at his feet and poured out my soul to him. I wept aloud like a child, and made such confessions as I could with my choked utterance. It seemed to me that I bathed his feet with my tears, and yet I had no distinct impression that I touched him that I recollect. I must have continued in the state for a good while, but my mind was too much absorbed with the interview to recollect anything that I said. But I know, as soon as my mind became calm enough to break off from the interview, I returned to the front office, and found that the fire that I had made of large wood was nearly burned out. But as I turned and was about to take a seat by the fire, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost. Without any expectation of it, without ever having the thought in my mind that there was any such thing for me, without any recollection that I had ever heard the thing mentioned by any person in the world, the Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. 
it seemed like the very breath of god i can recollect distinctly that it seemed to fan me like immense wings no words can express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart i wept aloud with joy and love and i do not know but i should say i literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart these waves came over me and over me and over me one after the other until i recollect i cried out i shall die if these waves continue to pass over me i said lord i cannot bear any more yet i had no fear of death how long i continued in this state with this baptism continuing to roll over me and go through me i do not know but i know it was late in the evening when a member of my choir for i was the leader of the choir came into the office to see me he was a member of the church he found me in this state of loud weeping and he said to me mr finney what ails you i could make him no answer for some time then he said are you in pain i gathered myself up as best i could and replied no but so happy that i cannot live Close quote. i just now quoted billy bray i cannot do better than give his own brief account of his post-conversion feelings quote, i can't help praising the lord as i go along the street i lift up one foot and it seems to say glory and i lift up the other and it seems to say amen and so they keep up like that all the time i am walking Close quote. footnote i add in a note a few more records quote, one morning being in deep distress fearing every moment i should drop into hell i was constrained to cry in earnest for mercy and the lord came to my relief and delivered my soul from the burden and guilt of sin my whole frame was in a tremor from head to foot and my soul enjoyed sweet peace the pleasure i then felt was indescribable the happiness lasted about three days during which time i never spoke to any person about my feelings Quote, in an instant there rose up in me such a sense of god's taking care of those who put their trust in him that for an hour all the world was crystalline the heavens were lucid and i sprang to my feet and began to cry and laugh Quote, my tears of sorrow changed to joy and i lay there praising god in such ecstasy of joy as only the soul who experiences it can realize Quote, i cannot express how i felt it was as if i had been in a dark dungeon and lifted into the light of the sun i shouted and i sang praise unto him who loved me and washed me from my sins i was forced to retire into a secret place for the tears did flow and i did not wish my shopmates to see me and yet i could not keep it a secret Quote, i experienced joy almost to weeping Quote, i felt my face must have shone like that of moses i had a general feeling of buoyancy it was the greatest joy it was ever my lot to experience Quote, i wept and laughed alternately 
I was as light as if walking on air. I felt as if I had gained greater peace and happiness than I had ever expected to experience. End footnote. One word, before I close this lecture, on the question of the transiency or permanence of these abrupt conversions. Some of you, I feel sure, knowing that numerous backslidings and relapses take place, make of these their aperceiving mass for interpreting the whole subject, and dismiss it with a pitying smile at so much hysterics. Psychologically, as well as religiously, however, this is shallow. It misses the point of serious interest, which is not so much the duration as the nature and quality of these shiftings of character to higher levels. Men lapse from every level. We need no statistics to tell us that. Love is, for instance, well known not to be irrevocable, yet constant or inconstant, it reveals new flights and reaches of ideality while it lasts. These revelations form its significance to men and women, whatever be its duration. So with the conversion experience, that it should for even a short time show a human being what the high-water mark of his spiritual capacity is, this is what constitutes its importance, an importance which backsliding cannot diminish, although persistence might increase it. As a matter of fact, all the more striking instances of conversion, all those, for instance, which I have quoted, have been permanent. The case of which there might be most doubt, on account of its suggesting so strongly an epileptoid seizure, was the case of M. Ratisbon. Yet I am informed that Ratisbon's whole future was shaped by those few minutes. He gave up his project of marriage, became a priest, founded at Jerusalem, where he went to dwell, a mission of nuns for the conversion of the Jews, showed no tendency to use for egotistic purposes the notoriety given him by the peculiar circumstances of his conversion, which, for the rest, he could seldom refer to without tears, and in short, remained an exemplary son of the church until he died, late in the eighties, if I remember rightly. The only statistics I know of, on the subject of the duration of conversions, are those collected for Professor Starbuck by Miss Johnston. They embrace only a hundred persons, evangelical church members, more than half being Methodists. According to the statement of the subjects themselves, there had been backsliding of some sort in nearly all the cases, 93% of the women, 77% of the men. Discussing the returns more minutely, Starbuck finds that only 6% are relapses from the religious faith which the conversion confirmed, and that the backsliding complained of is in most only a fluctuation in the ardor of sentiment. Only six of the hundred cases report a change of faith. Starbuck's conclusion is that effect of conversion is to bring with it a changed attitude toward life, which is fairly constant and permanent although the feelings fluctuate. In other words, the persons who have passed through conversion, having once taken a stand for the religious life, tend to feel themselves identified with it, no matter how much their religious enthusiasm declines. End of Lecture 10